Tonight's hour for us as a church to hear God and respond to him. So, so that's tonight. Excellent. Okay, well, I just want to uh, announce our new kind of Sundays. It's a series we're doing. Uh, a few months ago, we started going through the book of Philippians. Uh, and that was tremendous, going through verse by verse, or chapter by chapter, really, just uh, putting ourselves under the Word of God for a while like that and not being in control of what we're going to speak about, but following what he was wanting us to preach on, teach on, and that was a really good time. And then the last several, two or three Sundays, we focused a bit more on the, the church as a corporate family. And uh, really, for the next few months, uh, we want to focus a bit more about what it means to be a disciple of Christ, what that really means looks like, what that means. So we're kind of focusing right into our walk with God. And I, I feel very excited about this. And, and I believe it's very high on God's heart for us to know what it is to be a disciple. And over the weeks and months ahead, that's where we're going to be parked. That's what we're going to be finding out. Uh, but this is an intro, really, introducing the series. And to do that, I wanted to go to... Uh, Favourite passage of mine, Luke 14, verse 25. You might like to turn to it in your, in your Bibles, but don't worry if you don't have it. It'll be up on the screen. It's my go-to place, really, when I want to explore what a disciple looks like and Jesus' heart for discipleship. And uh, I know I've kind of mentioned it a few times before in the past to folks here, but it's one of those critical verses. So I'm going to read the verse, and then we're going to pray because we will need to pray after we've read the verse. All right, so here's the verse. Starts off with large crowds were traveling with Jesus. And turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me, does not hate father, mother, wife, and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. We need to pray, don't we? <laughs> Father, we thank you so much for your love and your grace. Lord, we're just so glorious worshipping you. Lord, your glory. Hallelujah. Lord, you're, you, you do not change. Our eyes are fixed on you. Even through the storm and the hurricanes that come our way, our eyes are fixed on you. And I, I pray that you'd help us this morning just to to know what to do with the verse we have in front of us. By your Holy Spirit, please change us and provoke and challenge us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So that's the verse. First thing to note, though, is that large crowds were traveling with Jesus. This was a common event. I mean, Jesus' whole ministry, if you read it, is about crowds. In fact, a few chapters earlier than Luke 14, you come across this verse in chapter 12. It says, a crowd of many thousands gathered so that they were trampling each other. So we're talking about whole towns emptying when Jesus came into the area. Whole villages emptying, people flocking to hear Jesus and to be on the receiving end of his healing and his demonstrations of the kingdom. Powerful, powerful times. So, so large crowds were traveling. But of course, it's the next part that hits us between the eyes. Uh, really, doesn't it? It says, in turning to them, or you could translate it, turning on them, he said... If anyone comes to me, doesn't hate father, mother, wife, children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry their cross and follow me 
cannot be my disciple. That's a hard-hitting verse, isn't it? Very hard verse. I mean, straight away I'm thinking, I can't think of a better way to scatter a crowd or to put people off than to say these words here. Yeah? Uh, now, I know we try and extract the heat from the passage. What we do is we say, well, what, what Jesus really meant was that our love for him was to be of such a different order that all earthly relationships aren't anything by comparison. They're different kinds of relationships. And you know what? Maybe that's true. Maybe that is what he meant. Many commentators say that's exactly what Jesus meant. But, but what gets me is that's not what he said. He didn't put it like that, did he? No, his words are like hand grenades, aren't they? they? They're very offensive. Even today, people are offended by these words. Even as I'm reading it out, some of you are squirming in your chair, saying, what? What does he mean by that? It's hardly seeker-friendly, is it? It's not the kind of thing we put in our church invites or, or Alpha. Come to Alpha. By the way, just hate your family and carry your cross, and, or if not, don't bother turning up. You know, the Christmas outreach event, mince pies are free, but hey, if you don't... No, no, no. It's a, but you see, it's statements like this in this kind of context that convinces me more than anything else that, that Jesus was never primarily after crowds. Now, 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 don't get me wrong. God so loved the world that he gave his son. All right? He loves everyone. But in this passage, Jesus is making a statement that he is after far more than numbers who will travel with him. Now, his yearning is for more, isn't it? He's looking for, he's looking for disciples. Or, or as Paul puts it slightly differently, he says this. Paul says, Jesus gave himself for us. Why? To purify for himself a people that are his very own, exclusively his. In other words, Jesus came to this earth not primarily to gather crowds, have lots of people around him or interested in him. Actually, he came for a people that would be his very own. He came for disciples. And really, that's what he's saying here. And it has to be said that many were offended by him. Many were put off. And uh, it's interesting. If you, if you read the New Testament, you'll see that Jesus is great at attracting crowds, but he's also good at scattering them as well. All right, many left him and went back home. And, and, and as you read the New Testament, you'll find this, that I've always, and I've always found it provoking that, that while thousands flocked to Jesus in his earthly ministry, when it comes to the first chapter of Acts, second chapter of Acts, and the early church gathers for the first time, there's only 120 of them. And I used to find myself thinking, well, well where's everybody else? You know, where's the, where's the 5,000 who were miraculously uh, fed by him? Where, where are the 4,000? Where are the many thousands who flocked to him for his healing and for his preaching? Where are they gone? Well, the answer is that they were great crowds, but few disciples. All right, great crowds, but, but few who were a people for his very own. And, and really, I think that here in Luke 14, in this confrontational way, Jesus is expressing a passion to raise up such a people. Right? A, a people of his very own, a people who will truly become like him and reflect his glory and grace to the world around them. Yeah? And to be honest, I think that's still one of the great challenges facing his church in our day. It's not to attract crowds as such, it's to raise up disciples. Because actually anyone, if you try hard enough, can gather a crowd. 
All right? I was thinking about this the other day. Just a, a couple of springs ago, a few holiday seasons ago, I was down in the central Wellington area, down in the kind of Cuba Street area, and I saw this huge, great crowd. There could have been as many as 100 people blocking the whole of that area. And lots of applauding going on and shouting and laughing. So I thought, you know, as you do, you kind of go up to the edge of the crowd and you work your way in to see what's going on. And I, I kind of worked my way to, towards the front. And you know what I saw? I saw a guy with a, with a six-inch kind of eight-inch spike and he was putting up his nose and he was hammering it in his nose until it disappeared. <laughs> and then he'd pull it out again and go like this. And we'd go, whoa, and he would applaud. And then he'd do it again, hammer it in. And I thought, how bizarre, how odd. I don't think it's hard to gather a crowd. He had no trouble. And I mean, we could try hammering a few spikes into our noses here. We could do that this morning, and a few more people would turn up. Word would spread, you know. Or, uh, or maybe if we were just better speakers or better entertainers, I'm sure we could gather a few more people in. But, but this passage is telling us it's not how much of a crowd you have or even how many turn up on a Sunday, it's, it's, are they my disciples? In other words, Jesus was reaching for more than crowds. And, and with a passion here that, that pulls us up short, it's meant to shock. It's like Jesus has taken us by the lapels and saying, you need to hear this. I'm getting your attention. And I think we do need to hear this because, well, if we don't, if as churches we become merely gatherings of Christian people, even gatherings of nice Christian people, if that's, if that's all we are, then we're settling for being far less than what Jesus was after when he turned on the crowds that day. Far less. And the thing is, if we settle for less, we're in danger of losing our distinctive from the world around us. All right, We're in danger of no longer being the heavenly kingdom people Jesus was after who would truly reflect him to the world. So it's a huge issue. In fact, you know what? I want to put it to you like this today. Discipleship, all right? Did you know discipleship is always going on around us, but it's not always helpful? Well, I, mean, I mean it like this. Years ago, I came across a guy in the States who, who became a great commentator on the late 20th century American church. He was very good at looking at fashions and trends. And uh, as he looked across the landscape of the church in America, uh, this guy, uh, Bill Hull, he said this. He says, as Jesus said, when a disciple is fully taught, he will be like his teacher. I maintain that the evangelical church is weak, self-indulgent, and superficial, that it has been thoroughly discipled by its culture or by the society around it. Now, now, now that sounds really harsh to me. <laughs> But can you see what he's saying? He's saying, look, whether you're aware of it or not, you will be being discipled by something, all right? Either by God or by the world around you, and in the end, you'll become like the one who is discipling you, yeah? And I think that's true. At one point, Bill Hall goes on to say, he says, the line between believers and non-believers is blurring and fading, disappearing. And I think, well, yeah, I think the way we use our money... Our time, our, our attitudes about work or, or about marriage or sexuality increasingly reflect the society around us rather than Scripture. 
And uh, I think that's more true today than ever. Interestingly, I came across some stats, statistics, uh, from a guy called uh, Peter Scarezzo, written a very good book on emotionally healthy church. But uh, he, he actually says this. He's been looking at the American church, and, and he says this. He says, what is perhaps most shocking is that divorce rate in several states traditionally known as the Bible Belt is among the highest in the country. George Barner has documented that the divorce rate for people who describe themselves as Christians is even higher than for the public as a whole. And I look at that and I think, what's going on? What is that? Well, what that is is a blurring of the lines. Yeah? People's view of marriage has changed and is changing. Same with uh, things like sexual immorality. I came across this from a really good website, the... Uh, Christian proposed, and they look at again these same statistics across the American church, and they make this point. They say 61% of Christians said they would have sex before marriage, and 56% said it's appropriate to move in with someone after dating between six months and two years. This is a this is a this is a Christian church in America, and I'm thinking, well, what's that? Well, well, that's the lines becoming blurred. That's the world impacting the church. And in fact, a guy, a commentator called uh, Peter Spriggs, looks on these figures and he says this. He actually says, Christians are perhaps more influenced by the society around them than they are by the teachings of Scripture. That's the world discipling the church and the church becoming more like the world. And I think it's getting harder these days because our society is going through such Deep shift so fast, isn't it? I mean, with the rise of internet, social media, you've got the rise of the whole liberal agenda, the breakdown of family, the blurring of sexual identity, rise of same-sex marriage, the obsession with self-image and possessions, all washing over us and our kids through things like social media and the internet in particular. And the lines are blurring. And maybe more and more the church is in danger of drifting back to simply being part of the crowd who merely travels with Jesus rather than being disciples of Jesus. That's the urgency here. See, this is the urgency. Listen, God's heart for us isn't that we merely travel with him. No, it's that we become a people whose distinctive is clear. Right? A people who are radically different. A people who truly find their joy and security and identity in God. Who need nothing from the world to improve on that or substitute for that. All right? And that's because Jesus' call is still this, that we change the world around us and are not to be changed by it. That's the call. It's to bring his kingdom in, his love, his life, his presence, his holiness. And you see, I think that's the urgency right here in Luke 14, and it's just as great today as it was back then. And over the next several Sundays, or numbers of Sundays, we're going to be exploring then what it truly means to be a disciple of Christ, what that looks like, what it practically means. So we'll be touching on all kinds of subjects. So come and uh, be challenged and stirred. And I know it's on God's heart. But you know, even today, as an intro, I just want to put it out there. What do we mean by the word disciple? What do we mean by it? Well, the Greek word, the New Testament word, it means learner or apprentice. You could say that. 
and there are many definitions, actually, but I think one of the best definitions comes from a man who I think really showed what discipleship looked like in his own life. All right, he's not a biblical figure, actually. He's, a, he's this guy here, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I'm sure many of you have heard of him before. Uh, but he, he lived this out in his day, and I'll go and talk to him about him a bit more later, but, but he put a definition this way. He said this. He says, uh, he says, when we are called to follow Christ, we are summoned to an exclusive attachment to a person. That's what he puts out there. An exclusive attachment to a person. So first of all, who's the person we're talking about? <laughs> well, the person is Jesus and all that he is. And if you want to know who he is, I can't think of anyone better to describe him in a few minutes than a preacher called Shadrach Meshach Lockridge. What a great name, Shadrach Meshach Lockridge, who described Jesus many years ago in a sermon. You may have heard it before, but I think it's wonderful in a few minutes. This is what he says about who, who Jesus is. Oh, sorry, I've just gone and done something. That was my fault. Here we go. The Bible says he's a king of the Jews. He's a king of Israel. He's a king of righteousness. He's a king of the ages. He's a king of heaven. He's a king of glory. He's a king of kings. And he is a lord of lords. Now that's my king. Do you know him? No means of measure can define his limitless love. Well, well, he's enduringly strong. He's entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast. He's immortally graceful. He's impurely powerful. And he's impartially merciful. Do you know him? He's God's son. He's a sinner's savior. He's the centerpiece of civilization. He's unparalleled. He's unprecedented. Well, he's the loftiest idea in literature. He's the highest personality in philosophy. He's a fundamental doctrine of true theology. Do you know him? He supplies strength for the weak. He's available for the tempted and the tried. He sympathizes and he saves. He heals the sick. He cleans the lepers. He forgives sinners. He discharges debtors. He delivers the captives. He defends the feeble. He blesses the young. He serves the unfortunate. He regards the age. He rewards the diligent. And he beautifies the meek. Do you know him? My king is a key of knowledge. He's a wellspring of wisdom. He's a doorway of deliverance. He's a pathway of peace. He's a roadway of righteousness. He's a highway of holiness. He's a gateway of glory. Do you know him? His life is matchless. His goodness is limitless. His mercy is everlasting. His love never changes. His word is enough. His grace is sufficient. His reign is righteous. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. I wish I could describe him to you, but he, he's indescribable. He's indescribable. Yeah. He's incomprehensible. He's invincible. He's irresistible. You can't get him out of your mouth. 
You can't get him off of your hands. You can't outlive him, and you can't live without him. Well, Pharisees couldn't stand him, but they found out they couldn't stop him. Pilate couldn't find any fault in him. And Herod couldn't kill him. Death couldn't handle him, and the grave couldn't hold him. That's my king. Yeah, he always has been, and he always will be. I'm talking about he had no predecessor, and he'll have no successor. You can't even teach him, and he's not going to resign. That's right. Oh, I just love it. I just love it. When I was just looking at that before, I was just preparing in the week and just brought it up. I was just sitting there thinking, I was just letting it wash over me. This is our king. This is Jesus. There is no one like him. I mean, this is, if he was to appear here physically, we'd all be on our faces before him. This is Jesus. This is the person who laid aside his majesty to die on a cross for you, to hunt you down, to seek you out, to call you to be a disciple. This is that Jesus. Hallelujah. And then when we talk about exclusive attachment, we're talking about being summoned to a total reorientation of our lives away from us and on him. That's what we're talking about. In a smaller way, it's a little bit like when you first become parents for for the very first time. I remember when I became a father... I didn't realize how selfish I was or or how self-centered I was until we had this little wriggly life in our hands who demanded everything. And suddenly all our lives, Julie and I were kind of around this little baby, dominated all our time, our money, our energy. We're always tired. This little baby, our lives were, were all around this little life. Well, even more so when we're talking about God. Exclusive attachment. It's where my focus or center shifts away from me and my preferences and my little ambitions and my little dreams and and center on him and his life and his desires and his eternal purpose. It's a shift away from me and onto him. And it's very powerful because if we do that, it will upend our lives. It will change us. And you can see this again and again in the New Testament. I think of Peter and Andrew and James and John. You know, when Jesus says, come and follow me, they don't just tag along behind him for the afternoon or turn up at some of his talks. No, if you read on, it says that they, they lay down their nets and they leave everything behind. They, they shift their orientation away from the life they've always known where it was always about them and they shift it onto him and his presence. And their lives are never the same again. I mean, P- Peter, j- just, just spare a thought for him for a second. I'm Peter the Apostle. We often think, you know, Peter, the great apostolic figure of the New Testament. But of course, there was a time before Jesus came to him. There was a time before. Have you ever, ever thought about how he was before Jesus turned up? What do you think his hopes and concerns were? What do you think he thought about before Jesus came to him? And of course, as you read about Peter, you'll know that he's a, he's a fisherman in a little place called Capernaum, a little town. He's a son of a fisherman. He's a grandson of a fisherman. 
He's never left the area. All he knows is fish and boats and the sea. He has no Google Maps or internet. He knows nothing about even the map of where he would be. And he knows nothing but his little world in this little town. In terms of his concerns or his dreams, probably his concerns are no more than how, how can I sell my fish? Or how can I keep my boat floating? How can I, how can I raise enough money to get the family through the winter and fed and clothed? I do hope the Romans don't put the taxes up again. And that's all he's thinking about. In terms of his dreams, maybe, maybe he's dreaming this. If things go well, 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 maybe I can repair the boat. Or I can add another boat to what I have. Or, or I can maybe go for that, buy that bigger house down the street so we're not crammed shoulder to shoulder in the place where we are. Or maybe even, I, I, I hope I can live to a good old age so that my sons can come through strong enough to take over the business so that we can all be looked after. Probably nothing much more than that. thing is, if you stepped in a time machine, went back in time, and you were able to get to Peter the day before Jesus turned up. Imagine this. Imagine you could go back in time and you met Peter. Jesus hasn't arrived on the scene yet. And you were to say to Peter, Peter, amazing. You know what, Peter? One day, soon, you will lay hands on the sick and they'll be healed. Or, or Peter, you will see the dead raised. Or, or Peter, you're going to leave this little town and you're going to go up onto the top of a mountain and you're going to see the Messiah glorified. You'll see Moses and Elijah. Peter, one day you're going you're gonna to preach in front of thousands of people. Peter, one day you're going to go to Rome. You don't even know where that is. You couldn't find it on a map. You're going to go to Rome. And Peter, you know, the stuff that you write will be looked on for thousands of years by millions of people as sacred scripture and the word of God. And Peter, one day you will die crucified upside down. Can you imagine saying that to Peter before Jesus has turned up? Can you imagine his response? You are nuts. He'd be like, there's no way on earth I'd be doing any of that. What about my fish? But then Jesus does come and says to Peter, follow me. And really what he's saying is, Peter, leave your little world, which is all about you, and step into mine, which is about my glory and my love and my eternal purposes. And Peter does. He leaves his nets and his village and his little life, and his life is never the same again. It's glorious, but it's never the same again. And you know, Jesus is still coming to us and saying the same thing. He would say the same thing to you and me. He would say, Leave your little world and your nets. Leave the things that so preoccupy you, or your ambitions, or your entertainments, or your little sins, or your regrets, or your compulsions, or your shames, or your regrets. Leave it behind and step into my world. Follow me, love me, the Prince of Glory and the Lord of Life. Jesus is still putting that invitation out there to each one of us. Jesus calls us not just to travel with him, not just to be part of an interested crowd turning up on Sundays and then living the rest of the week like everyone else, 
No, he calls us to an exclusive attachment to his person. I mentioned uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer earlier, and I want to just end with him because I think he really did live out exactly what I'm saying this morning. I don't know whether you know much about him, but he was a young man who lived in Germany in the 1920s. And in Germany in the 1920s, he felt a call from God, and he became a theology student, actually, and uh, taught theology, and then became a local pastor. This is in Germany in the 1920s into the 30s. But when the Nazi party rose up as a political force in Germany in the 1930s, you know, there came a moment where he put up his hand and said, no, no, this is wrong. This is not the heart of Christ. And he spoke up against the, 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 the Nazi party, and he made some enemies. But he carried on pastoring. And, of course, the Nazis grew stronger, and eventually they took over the whole country. Again, Bonhoeffer raised his hand and said, no, that is wrong. That is not the heart of Christ. And he saw the Jews being persecuted in the late 30s, and he said, no, it is not the heart of Christ. And then they began to hunt him and began to target him. And then later, the church he was part of caved in to the Nazi pressure and just towed the line. In fact, they joined the Nazi party. And Bonhoeffer again took a step back and stepped out of that church and said, no, that's wrong. That is not the heart of Christ. And he stepped away. And then he began to be hunted even more. All because he would not back down from following Jesus, honoring Jesus, loving Jesus. And then, of course, he had to flee and hide because the, the, the internal security forces were after him. But even in hiding, you know what he did? He gathered a, a group of young men around him and he began to train them and teach them what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. He had a passion for discipleship. And about that time, or just before that time, he wrote a book, a very famous book now, called The Cost of Discipleship. It's gone millions and millions of copies throughout the world. Wonderful book. And, but in the meantime, he was teaching these young men to stay strong in their faith in Christ. Somewhere along the line, he also got engaged, which was nice. They fixed a wedding date. But before the wedding date could come around, the police caught up with him and they put him behind bars. This is 1943. The war is going on. He's put behind bars in 1943, treated harshly. But even behind bars, you know, he would pass to the inmates and pray with them. Amazing. Still preaching about Jesus. Still expressing his love for Jesus. And then, three weeks before the end of the war, he was taken out early one morning and he was hanged. Uh, three weeks before the end of the war. Even as he was about to be hung, they could hear the guns of the Allies far off. And I think, what a tragic end. Now, you could say, well, well, what's that all about? A young life brought to such an end. What's the meaning and what's the purpose? Well, actually, this story is about a man who clung to Jesus with an exclusive attachment, followed him totally at huge cost, at the cost of losing his family. He could have recanted. He could have kept his head down. He could have just not complained against the Nazi regime, and he would have kept his family. But he stood strong, and he pointed out this is wrong, and he loses his family. He's taken from them and put behind bars. Eventually, well... He's, he's carrying his cross, really, literally, to the point where he's executed. 
he carries his cross. It's about a man like Peter who stepped out of his small, safe, domestic world and stepped into Jesus' huge and glorious one. You say, well, yeah, but he died. But he died. That's true, but I'd argue that because of his death, his books spread like wildfire throughout the world. And they are still going strong, and they are affecting the lives of tens of thousands of people throughout the world. And I'd also argue that what he gained in encountering God and his glory and his grace in the months leading up to his death far outweighed the cost of his suffering when the time came. You see, there's a, an account of a doctor who oversaw people being executed back then. You had to have a doctor on the scene. And there's an account the doctor wrote long afterwards what he saw when Bonhoeffer died. And it's a very moving account. He says this, and I'll just take quotations uh, from that. On the morning when he was to be let out, he said, he said, we watched Bonhoeffer kneel and pray before being led up to the gallows. He says, I was most deeply moved by the way this lovable man prayed, so devout and so certain that God heard his prayer. He wrote, at the place of execution... He again said a short prayer and then he climbed the steps to the rope, brave and composed. In the almost 50 years that I worked as a doctor, I have hardly ever seen a man die so entirely at peace and submissive to the will of God. In other words, by then Bonhoeffer knew Jesus so intimately that nothing could make him afraid and he simply stepped into glory. I want to know Jesus that well. Not just when my time comes, but every day of my life. I want to know Jesus that well and, and love Jesus all the days of my life. I want to step out of my own little world, my own little personal preferences, my own little ambitions. I want to walk into his world, his holiness, his glory, his kingdom. You see, the point of all of this and this whole series we're going into is to understand that Jesus is determined to bring his kingdom in across the earth, but he will do so not through crowds who merely travel with him. He will do it through disciples who are deeply in love with him. And that's where we're going over these next Sundays. And he's calling you even this morning. The invitation is still there. Will you travel with me or will you be my disciple? The invitation is for an exclusive attachment out of our little worlds and coming into his great world, full of his glory and grace and mercy and peace. Can we stand, please? Let's just stand.